welcome to this episode of the Ace and Car podcast series, where we discuss research and nationalism, the radical right, and everything in between. I'm your host, Nicholas James. The Ace and Car podcast is sponsored by the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism and the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. If you'd like to support the podcast, for now, you can follow Carr and ASEN on Twitter and do your best to spread the word. You can find us on asen.ac.uk and radicalrightanalysis.com. For this episode, I sit down for a discussion on whiteness and the far right with Dr. Aaron Winter and Dr. Nikki Falkoff. Dr. Winter is a senior lecturer in criminology and criminal justice at the University of East London, where he researches right-wing extremism and terrorism, hate groups and hate crimes, and racism, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia. Dr. Falkov is an associate professor in the Media Studies Department at Wits University. She researches cultural studies and writes on race, anxiety, and moral panic in the urban global south, with a primary focus on South Africa. So thank you both for coming on today. Um, I'd like to ask you, what are both of your general backgrounds and experiences and what brought you to study uh, the far right? A couple ways of, of looking at it. Uh, one is I'm a criminologist at University of East London. My background is in political science and sociology. Um, I, I, and my, my interest has always been on, on racism and the management the state's management of racism. Um, and I think, I guess my, my particular interest is the way in which the far right has often stood in as, I guess, foot soldiers of their of the racist or white supremacist status quo. Um, but at times of crisis, particularly in American history, the far right would be um, designated the problem of racism and racism in the far right would be conflated. And um, I found this function of the far right replicated in, in academic work and um, in the construction of the extremist or the terrorist. And so I, I moved from basically from political science and, and a focus on the state to a focus on social issues, inequalities and um, movements. Okay, well, I, I come at this from quite a sideways perspective. Um, I work at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. I'm in the Media Studies Department. Um, I did quite an odd PhD in Cultural Studies, uh, which morphed into being quite an odd first book, uh, which was about um, moral panics among white people in late apartheid South Africa, one around Satanism and one around family murder. So my initial interest in, in doing academic work was less about a specific field and more about asking the question of what the hell is wrong with white people in South Africa. And I am a white person from South Africa. So I think that's always been one of the things that's driven me is looking at the kind of bizarre, heavily racialized pathologies of the... I guess you could say community that I come from. So the project that I've been working on more recently, which hopefully will be a second book when I finish it finally, um, is a broader interrogation of four case studies of similar instances of collective anxiety or risk hysteria or urban legend or moral panic among contemporary South Africans. So I've moved away from the late apartheid period and I looked at all sorts of different things to do this book. And one of the things that I kept coming back to was what seemed like the particular instance of white far-right hysteria that 
coalesced in around 2013 and, it, and, then, and then expanded in about 2016, 17 around the idea of white genocide. So I approached this less as being interested in the far right as such and more as wanting to look at how and why are people talking about there being a white genocide in South Africa when white South Africans live a disproportionately privileged life and white South Africans, like all South Africans, are of course um, potentially subject to violent crime because it is an incredibly violent society and this is a huge problem for everybody. But why has that vulnerability to violence been translated by certain types of white groups into this really excessive, overblown, hysterical notion of genocide. And then that led me into looking at these particular far-right groupings that I think use the idea of white genocide for particular specific political and economic gain. Okay, so this is really interesting. We, we have kind of from Satanism to terrorism and the far-right is the connecting factor here. <laughs> Um, which is probably accurate. Um, <laughs> but there is kind of um, a, a theme here, though, of white victimhood and victimization narratives. And, and with the with far-right mythologies in general, there's obviously a large amount of material to tackle. But what, for both of you, uh, particularly stands out as the most underrated or understudied in that sort of line of research? Nikki, do you want to go for that? Sure. Um, yeah, we can just back this backwards and forwards. I mean, as I say, this isn't explicitly my field, so I can't really say what is understudied and what is not, but... The work that I've written and the work that I've um, engaged with in terms of conservative, traditional and far right white groupings in South Africa, um, a lot of this work is quite thin, right? People are thinking about the kind of the, think about the sociology of it in really interesting ways. They're thinking about the history of it in really interesting ways, but very few people are thinking about how these stories are spread, right? What about what about these stories is it that actually appeals to people? So what I think is, what I would say is understudied in, in the area of this that I'm interested in is actually the question of affect, right? Affect and narrative. How do these particular types of foreign stories work? What is it that they do? Why do they work on people? Why do they interest people? Why do they keep having currency decade after decade and even century after century? And I think I completely understand the reason that at least in the, you know, in kind of South African cultural studies, such as it may be that this is to some extent understudied because a lot of scholars of color don't want to spend their time thinking about white far right discourses and they shouldn't have to. Because it's not that, you know, that's not their hill to die on. It is actually ethically, I think it is the job of white scholars to be doing critical analytical work on whiteness on the problematics of whiteness. And up until this point, or up until fairly recently, there haven't been that many of us doing this. There haven't been that many of us doing this work. So there is a kind of a burgeoning group of, of white South African scholars. Lots of us are female, particularly, um, I should name check Melissa Stain, who is a sociologist at my university, who is really like a, a path breaker in, in this kind of thing, who's helping us to think about how the stories that people tell and the ways in which people tell those stories and the kind of what she calls white talk continues to legitimize white myths and white narratives that to people who aren't part of them seem incredibly outdated. So yeah, I think we need, I think we need to be talking about affect, we need to be talking about narrative, we need to be talking about stories in order to understand why these things still have power. Yeah, I mean, I, I would 
I would say a big, a big gap in sort of far right studies is, is very much the things Nikki was referring to. Um, at the same time, I, I find, I, I feel sometimes I'm, I'm somewhat between, I guess, sociology of race and racism and terrorism studies. And I find what's, what's interesting in far right studies as well is that there seems to be ironically a, a lack of discussion and interrogation of racism. And actually a lot of, a lot of, um, a resistance to naming the problem, effectively. You have, um, in fact, increasingly, and I, I just have a piece that came out yesterday with uh, Aurelian Mondon and Katie Brown on the euphemization of racism in the far right with terms like populism and analysis of positions on immigration, as opposed to talking about white supremacy and the structures of white supremacy and the way in which racialized people are 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 targeted and constructed uh, in relation to the nation and whiteness. Um, at the same time, um, I find within sociology of race and racism, there's an emphasis on structural institutional racism and not a lot of discussion about the far right. And in far right studies, likewise, there's a lack of discussion about racism structurally and within the mainstream, because I think it's predicated on the construction of the extremist as other to the norm, other to the mainstream. Um, whereas terrorism studies, there's a lack of engagement with both racism, including the, the racialization of, and securitization of Muslim communities. Um, and a lack of attention on the far right. So in some ways, I think there is there is a lack of attention to certain really important issues. And I think it's it's both racism and the relation between the extreme and the mainstream that are central to, I guess, my project and the projects I'm working on with colleagues like Aurelian, um, Katie and others um, that I think really need attention. And I, I guess, I find my, my work is at the intersection of these three where racism is the issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just, if I could just add to that briefly, I think one of the things that we, that people who work in, in these sorts of fields overlook a lot of the time in their focus on the far right as some sort of kind of uh, homogenous entity is because, because we are often anxious as scholars about speaking explicitly about racism and because it's often a kind of a lacuna in our work unless we are explicitly calling ourselves scholars of race because we're not looking at that explicitly we often miss the way in which the kind of narrative structures that define stories that happen on the so-called far right slip so easily into communities that we would not consider far right right that actually these kind of narrative forms are one of the ways in which Conspiracy theories, myths, stories, beliefs, all these things get transmitted between extreme groups and groups that we would think of as being significantly less extreme. But in a way, by calling things, by, by defining ourselves as people who consider the far right as a discrete entity, we're almost making it impossible for us to really understand the effective spread of these stories into the mainstream. I, I couldn't agree more. And, 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 and just to... to Taken in a direction, I think that we're probably going to go anyway. One of the one of the the, the narratives that I, I've increasingly been concerned about is this: the left behind, the white working class narrative. That that it's where race seems to be acknowledged and in the mainstream is a way of legitimizing white grievances and white anxieties and white perceptions. Um, of othering, victimization, et cetera. And in a sense, for some reason, when far-right discourses and narratives get to the mainstream, 
the mainstream can sometimes accept them, but in a way that legitimizes far right ideas. And I think, I think that's where it's been quite dangerous recently. And this is also why in my own work, I'm interested in the relationship between the far right and the mainstream. And I, I, I haven't in my, in sort of, you know, in my career so far, um, seen it this acute. Yeah. So I think we captured a, a pretty important gap of engagement between different fields of scholarship that I certainly see in my own research <laughs> extensively. But um, in terms of, I kind of want to focus on the, the, the left behind narrative. So what do you think is so powerful about that? Well, I mean, one thing that, and this is not, this is not what you just asked, sorry, but it just struck me. One thing that I think is incredibly interesting about the left behind narrative is when we think about it, what we usually think about is, yes, you know, uh, people trying to explain Donald Trump by saying, you know, no one paid attention to these quote unquote left behind voters. And, you know, no one no one understood that Brexit was going to happen because they didn't take account of these certain types of white people who were not in the south of England. Right. So there's all these ideas that certain types of white people are pushing back against a system because they feel that the elites are ignoring them and, you know, the immigrants are taking their jobs. We know all this stuff. Now, the way that this manifests in South Africa, which is so interesting to me, is that this this idea of white people being left behind is actually... Um, geographical as well. There has been, through the the whole of 20th century history, there's been this idea that quote unquote English South Africans can just pack up and leave because they all have other passports, which of course isn't true. And quote unquote Afrikaans white South Africans are stuck in South Africa. They have nowhere else to go. They are literally physically left behind. They have been left behind by Europe. Europe came colonized South Africa, left behind this group of like, you know, upstanding Christian, Calvinist, civilizing people, and then promptly left them behind and has never been willing to take them back. And I think that that's part of the impetus behind this bizarre wave of um, material that you see. There, are, If you look on the petition site of .gov.uk, the UK government's um, yeah, they have a site where you can basically put up petitions and they have to discuss them if they reach a certain number. I was keeping an eye on this for a while, and at any given time, there was at least one petition up there asking the British government to allow white South Africans to to move here, to claim refugee status and to move to the UK. Because there is this sense that white people in South Africa are inherently somehow European, but that Europe has abandoned them to Africa. So even though there are these constant claims of autochthony and we are African and we are this and we are that, at the same time, there's this intense anxiety coupled with a lot of resentment and anger at the fact that the quote-unquote civilized world has actually actively abandoned certain types of white people to the depredations of Africa that they are no longer controlled of. And I think that is a version of the left-behind narrative that we don't usually talk about, which is why conversations like the one that Aaron and I started all of this with, I think are so important because the same stories are being told in multiple locations at the same time in slightly different ways. Yeah. The, the, I mean, that, that's the, the, the way in which this manifests in different locations, is, I think really, really important. I mean, I think with the white working class and the left behind narrative, I mean, I, it's, it's no surprise that it's, it's during periods of crisis that the far right mobilizes. And in some cases, mainstream right-wing mobilizations that play on anxieties um, can can manifest. I mean, for example, the more the more in the more recent context, the 
the economic crisis in Britain and the uh, globally, but also the austerity which followed it, um, created a sense of crisis that um, could be mobilized by the right, not as a challenge to austerity, not as a grievance based on um, the demonization of working class people or the, the denial of working class people a, a welfare state and support and jobs and decent wages, but saying it's your whiteness that is being threatened, not your class. And I think the construction of the white working class narrative, the left behind, is that what it takes is effectively a class phenomenon, that working class people are, have been disproportionately harmed by the economic crisis and the austerity that followed, or in America, deindustrialization, et cetera, um, and, and, and a eating away of a very thin welfare, <laughs> welfare system to begin with. And, um, and saying, it's not that which is doing this. It's, you, you don't have class solidarity. You have racial solidarity. You're being victimized because you're white. And, and, and part of the problem with that is, is that it feeds a divide and rule that, that ignores the fact that actually racialized working class people are even disproportionately, on top of that, affected by these because they're the simultaneous victims of classism and racism. And what it says is that when, when racialized people make demands, they're asking something white to give them, or they're taking away something from white people. And in fact, that, if anything, that kind of anxiety and that re response from sort of like white identitarians and, and sociologists of class a lot of times um, is actually shows what, how white privilege operates, shows that it's a loss of even something which causes this recoil effect and this, this delving into crisis. Whereas, um, you know, in, in reality, the, the left behind is almost necessary as a construction because it renders whiteness other, which gives it a, a greater legitimacy to make demands which are historically... Um, seen as the remit of the powerless. And I mean, me and Aurelian have done some research on, on this. We had a recent article in uh, uh, the journal Identities where we talk about the sort of the, both the construction of the white working class and the, the racialization of the left behind. Um, the fact that, um, and if you look at the voting maps in terms of Trump and, and Brexit, it's a, it's a lot more diverse class-wise but it, it, it's, it's fairly white. And it seems like it's also a white elite mobilizing and piggybacking on a victim narrative that actually, that, that creates conflict and allows austerity, right-wing politics um, that eat away at the welfare state to continue unchallenged. Yeah, so I have a follow-up question to this. So we're talking about whiteness in in general as almost a a causal factor here so what what is it that makes um whiteness al almost this core coalescing force okay well i mean you i think you actually raise a really good point it's important for us not to slide into the too easy discussion of whiteness as this kind of you know a given Right, something that just is where we all understand what it means, because obviously that isn't the case. And I think, you know, if we're going to think about whiteness in this way, we also need to think about the way in which it is historically constructed and has been historically constructed. 
obviously there's a huge amount of research on this stuff, but for me, you know, in, in terms of what I'm interested in, I come back a lot to the 1930s in South Africa and the Carnegie Commission, which was a philanthropic, uh, philanthropic investigation into poor whiteness in South Africa. And they, they were doing concurrent investigations into the phenomenon, the problem of poor whiteness in the US. So at this point, what you have is you actually have these really rich philanthropic organizations looking at people who are socially coded as white, but who are living in ways that are not socially coded as white. And they are explicitly saying, this is not okay. We need to fix this. Otherwise the boundaries of whiteness might become a little bit less secure. Right. If it's not clear who's what and who lives in what way, and if all these people live together and God forbid we start having miscegenation and then the children are all brown and no one speaks English properly, la la la. I mean, we know all these, we know all these stories. But at that point in history, what happens is this big rich US philanthropic organization decides to use South Africa as a kind of a location for a little social experiment to see if they can quote unquote fix the problem of quote unquote poor whites. And there's, an, there's been a lot of really interesting work done on this. Um, springs to mind a woman called Annika Teppo and a really amazing book by someone called Tiffany Willoughby Herod called Waste of a White Skin. And they show so clearly the way in which white people or people who are coded as white had to be taught respectability and had to be taught hygiene and had to be taught how to be worthy of all the things, of all the philanthropy that they were now receiving. And there's been really similar work done, um, particularly by uh, Christy Kruger recently in South Africa on the kind of rush of anxiety around contemporary white poverty in the post-apartheid era. There's been loads of international media coverage of poor white, so-called poor white people in so-called squatter camps, which are nothing like the squatter camps and informal settlements where people live who are not white. But once again, what she's shown is the way in which white people are trained to, these white people, poorer white people are trained into a certain mode of respectability. So despite the fact that there are class alliances between people who have less money and less power, you know, David Roder just says this in the, in the Wages of Whiteness, there are ways in which there are performances of race that working class and poorer people who are not racialized as non-white, there are performances of race that they can do that allow them to access some degree of, of kind of the more mythic privileges of whiteness, but also really practical privileges of whiteness. Because if you look like you're doing that, then there might be someone in a church group who's going to come and help you and your children. You might be able to get access to private medical care because some nice local person who wants to help out their community will help you. And you won't get any of that stuff if you are not willing to perform whiteness in the way you're expected to perform it. So I think when we when we think about whiteness, when we talk about what it means, um, it's really important to acknowledge that it's not just constructed socially or constructed politically. It's also done on a daily basis by the people who are placed within it from all different levels of power. Mm -hmm. It's like an everyday whiteness. Yeah, I, I mean, my, my work my work's less on the on the everyday than than the kind of my focus on whiteness is when it gets evoked when it gets constructed within political narratives or movement narratives to mobilize people. Um, and that, that's not completely distinct from other processes, but in a sense, um, I'm quite interested in the way in which it is either evoked to mobilize and the construction of white, of white identities through both identity narratives uh, and movement kind of material, ephemera, et cetera, um, 
but also through the analysis of these movements and these narratives that sort of can reify whiteness. Um, at the same time, I'm, I'm also looking at these movements as having sort of being the topping, the additional topping onto a white supremacist system. And that system operates, can operate through people, but can also operate through institutions and structures of inequality, which, which a lot of these movements and kind of more identity-driven mobilizations police the boundaries of. Um, returning to the issue of, of the white victim narrative and the left behind, one of the things I think is really interesting, and, and Rodiger is one of the, one of the scholars um, who works on this, is the way in which the very construction of the white working class is itself an act of sort of an exorcism of difference within whiteness and the probationary nature of a lot of groups historically um, because of their class, their labor status, because of their home ownership or lack of home ownership, because of their immigration status or their sort of like ethnic white, white ethnicity. So um, Irish people, Italian, Greeks, Jewish people. And the way in which whiteness, the boundaries of whiteness to police that has been one of those one of those processes, and in fact, you see this in the second era of the Ku Klux Klan and the nativist movement, where there was basically a focus on what we would now often consider sort of white groups or white ethnicities um, coming into America, and as a threat to sort of like Anglo-Germanic Protestant whiteness. Um, and I think to ignore when you the construction of the left behind in both this country and that country ignores that these processes ignores the way in which whiteness policed itself and and constructed a white working class out of that. Um, and I'm I'm quite interested in those processes. At the same time, I would just note that as much as I may be focusing on movements that identify and articulate whiteness, I do think it's really important to see them on the back of a in what in America would be the post-civil rights era, a, an increasing move towards colorblind racism and, and post-racialism, where actually there is the, the mobilization of white anxieties without mentioning race. Because how, how embedded in the post-civil rights era, um, how embedded um, the, the idea that the far right was the manifestation of racism was and such that you you couldn't then call out socioeconomic inequality as an example of white supremacy or race or institutional racism and so i, I mentioned the way the far right and sort of active white mobilizations figure into this imagination or imaginary yeah so we're picking up a lot on boundary making processes and I have a question that kind of brings us to the front of this. What's the place of mythologies and discourses in creating these boundaries? Um, and I specifically uh, am thinking about some historical examples, especially from America, with uh, even Irish and Italian immigrants coming in, um, kind of upsetting the balance of majority ethnic makeup. Well, I mean, in South Africa, I think this stuff is abundantly clear, right? Um, because Africana identity had to 
construct itself in contradistinction to both Black South Africans and the British, because by the time Afrikaners had become codified as something that could be thought of as Afrikaners, the Dutch no longer ran the country. So Afrikaner whiteness, this is not my idea, someone else came up with this, I can't cite them because I can't remember who it was. Um, Afrikaner whiteness is, I guess, a kind of subaltern whiteness and always has been. British or English-speaking South African whiteness then developed in contradistinction to that as this kind of, you know, very uh, motherland, traditional, colonial type of whiteness. So you have got these, these different practices that people engage in, these kind of different heritage practices and identity practices. And then all of this stuff runs heads headlong into the fact that um, many Black South Africans have very kind of real, uh, close and vital relationships to all sorts of traditional groupings, all sorts of historical traditions. So every year we have a day called Heritage Day, which is a, it used to be a, it used to be kind of an apartheid national holiday and now it's a national holiday for everybody and everyone is supposed to celebrate the heritage. And every year there, there's this kind of ongoing collective joke about the fact that the heritage of white people is to bribe, right? To barbecue. And this is it. This is the only heritage that we have. This is the only thing that we do. And there, there are these kind of constant little moments of um, mockery and hilarity and contestation in popular culture when it looks like white people are trying to adopt elements of black cultures. So there's even, I mean, even though white people, even though the kind of two main white groupings have very distinct cultural backgrounds. You, know, you also have kind of white Portuguese people, white Greek people, white Italian people, white Jews who all define themselves slightly differently. There is a kind of constant underlying anxiety that white heritages and white cultures are actually not, are not as powerful or not as meaningful as the heritages and cultures of all the other types of people in South Africa. So I think there's a kind of a there's been a long-term, particularly among Afrikaners, there's been a long-term overinvestment in symbols. And we now have a long, we now have this really kind of, you know, quite hysterical overinvestment in language and in, in signs. Um, the fact that um, many schools and universities are being made to change their policies so that they no longer they no longer teach in Afrikaans is being spoken of by many of the kind of very, very um uh, powerful, far-right, quite fascist white Afrikaners. That is being spoken of as a component of genocide, right? The fact that people who do not speak your language are no longer being taught school in your language is literally being classified as a genocide. So there's a way in which culture, symbolism, and identity become coherent with the notion of the white self completely. And any threats to those things, or any perceived weakness in those things, or any assumption that the way in which other groups have those things may be more powerful, more or, or closer to people's daily lives. Those are issues that provoke enormous anxiety, lots of fundraising, lots of public performances of identity. And those tend to lead to huge social and often political clashes between different people within this very kind of complicated multilateral society. Yeah. I find the, 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 the issue of heritage is quite an interesting one. It's like there, there is this, defense of heritage as if it should be the norm and the treatment of sort of racialized or minoritized groups uh, demands or even articulations of culture is somehow it's it's they're they're seen as both discreet and a threat in the same way you know like why do why do they why do we have black history night month and not 
White History Month, in the same way in which the defensive heritage almost of even a, a dominant hegemonic heritage articulates itself as a sort of minoritized special need or special interest or special right and, and compartmentalized because the entire defensive heritage is itself, um, I think, always, always taken as both the assumption that it should be dominant and the perception or fear that it is no longer. And um, I mean, I, I think I, I talked about this at the, on the panel about the way in which uh, Confederate monuments uh, are, were not actually part of the heritage. They were built as a backlash um, in the, in the, in the, in, like in the interwar period. Um, and they were, they were, they were a constant reminder once the first era clan had been destroyed and Jim Crow had been established for black people to watch themselves. Um, and it policed, it policed public squares. It policed institutions that this is a reminder that this is the Confederacy. This is what we fought for. Um, in terms of mythologies, I mean, I guess I would, on that note, would kind of differentiate between a number of, of mythologies or mythological structures. There are, there are the, the shared ones, you know, in America, manifest destiny, European heritage, uh, or European civilization is some sort of code for whiteness. Um, uh, conspiracy theories themselves as a structure, um, the nation, um, but you also have ones that are particular to the far right and um, in, in, a, in a post, in a sort of post-war era, um, this would have been the Confederacy, for example, the myths of the Confederacy. Um, but you also have myths that are, are specific to, I guess, I mean, I guess the, the Great Replacement, again, would be one that was shared across the far right. Um, where where Jewish Jews and Muslims occupy those positions uh, that are the replacing forces, um, but you also have ones that are specific to individual groups. Um, you have like a Christian dominionism, which is linked very much to to Protestantism and Pentecostal far right organizations. But you have, and part of my research is on the the post civil rights era, where whiteness, which had been defended and the nation that had been defended hegemonically as a possessive um, entitlement of these organizations and the white race um, were, were seen as having been lost with civil rights. Um, and you start to see these dominant mythologies and, and mythological sources uh, like of, of white supremacy or biological racism and um, and Protestantism replaced by more esoteric um, religions, I mean, you, Odinism, uh, Christ, Christian identity, um, or some, some odd third position kind of uh, far-right pseudo-Marxism, um, where they could simultaneously, they could articulate a system that had been, that had been like whiteness, whites had been abandoned and had to and and had to had to find a source for their own identity and mobilization elsewhere, and and I think right now, you, you, in particularly in America, you have a combination of these. You have a combination of this identification with whiteness, with like Nazism and Odinism and Vikings and everything. At the same time, you have a traditional sort of state-supportive Protestant Ku Klux Klan. 
And so you have, you have a lot of sources of mythologies um, that can basically tell you who's, who's victimizing you, how you've been victimized, and how you need to articulate your identity to, uh, to both represent that displacement, the loss of hegemonic kind of identification and power, and how do you mobilize and get new recruits um, for a, a movement to change what is effectively a racist anxiety and perception. Yeah, so you brought up a really good point about um, kind of the the multiple traditions hypothesis within any nation's um, constitutive myths, symbols, um, discourses. People can pick and choose from these, and those are um, different dominant lines of discourse that, that erupt. And America in particular has that uh, sort of quote-unquote heritage slash traditionalism of the South, which is racist. Uh, We'll just say it. Um, (laughs) It's not going to be popular on Twitter, is it? Um, No, no. Not much much is in this area. But but with that, and especially with the the statue, um, I guess, dilemma for these uh, states... There, there's a huge uh, contingency of alt-right people in the North who, who ascribe to these. And, and I think that um, brings us to the sort of racist element here. P- people in the North who are like, well, it's heritage. And so I, I do have a question that um, arises here. How does the alt-right take these um, pretty regional symbols and myths and how, how do they make them popular for everybody? Yeah, Aaron, that's one for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, uh, going back to that, the, the Confederate, the, build, the building of Confederate memorials, I mean, like, it's always this unbelievable contradiction when it's in the service of whiteness. Um, I always have this thing where I'm talking at a conference and someone will say to me, goes, but that doesn't make sense. That's a contradiction. And I'm like, I think that's not how you fight fascism. That's not for yeah. right. Well, you've contradicted yourself. Yeah. And of course, well, you would say that you're a Jewish anti-racist. You know, I mean, it's uh, the, I guess the thing is when the Confederate memorials and Confederate institutions or institutions were being memorialized that way, this was also occurring during like, wars, world wars, where American federal military bases were being named after Confederate Fort Lee. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, there's an inherent, these were seditionist, you know, generals and, and military leaders. How do you square that? Um, how do you, I mean, how do you square the, you know, the fight against fascism by engaging it, by interning the Japanese. I mean, like, there, you know, racism allows for these kind of things. In fact, it, 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 it spells, as much as, as these movements may spend a lot of time articulating their, in their manifestos, their particular, you know, theo, theological, political lines and everything like that, there is a hunger for opportunities to be racist. Um, and I, I don't think the state is necessarily, um, is definitely not free of that. So when you have the traditional far right, though, in America, you had very particular lines, like certain groups wouldn't talk to others. 
Um, when you have the second, the third, the fifth era, sorry, in the post-civil rights era, you had Aryan nations organizing their Aryan world congresses where they tried to bring everyone together, tried to unite the right, because the crisis was seen as so bad for white people that it didn't matter if you had patriots and fascists, Odinists and Christians. It didn't matter. In fact, um, in the 1960s, um, the far right started bringing, letting in Catholics, the American Nazi Party, letting in Catholics. And it was, a, it was a sign that the probation for certain whites was over because we needed more whites to fight the war. Um, the alt-right, I think, fo- follows on that, that history uh, from Aryan nations, which is, is bringing together everyone and uniting the right, to use you know, the term for the, the Kessler alt-right um, march. And you can see, you know, you can fight for America as a whole from the North, evoking Confederate symbols, as you said. You can defend America against foreigners um, using fascist imagery. Um, you can, you know, you can fight against, um, you know, in the case of, say, the EDL or, or, or Trumpism recently, you can play on Hindu nationalism in, in, in your Islamophobia or Sikh. Um, or try to recruit Sikhs in the case of, of, of the English Defense League, because the focus is, is sometimes who your specific enemy is and all other bets are off. In other, and you see this also with attempts to kind of with like philo-Semitism from the far right in, in Britain in their Islamophobia. So there's, there is a mix and match. It makes sense if you understand the, uh, the, the, the target of the hate and what the what they need to mobilize, or they think they need to mobilize in terms of numbers and possibly sympathy, and this is where you get the sort of what me and Aurelia Madon call liberal the liberal racism of the sort of you know women's rights far right LGBT rights far right. Um, but I think the alt right question specifically is, and I, I, I don't I don't want to use this term in anything but sort of like a very very ironic and sort of sad way, but like by by not making it ideology dependent and not making it movement dependent and being out there online in a multiplicity of forums, you effectively, it's like a democratized community of mobilized racists. And in fact, that, I think that's how they've done it. Now, that's also why there's no you know, command structure. There's no, and there's, there's a difficulty I, and I, I really do believe this. There's a difficulty with this idea that, like, how do we stop youth recruitment or youth radicalization? Because, in a sense, what they've done is they've spread themselves out so far and wide that you have to actually have entrepreneurs of this idea of this of this mobilization that can play on very simplistic and very um, very sort of instinctive and very uh, non ideological um, in an overt sense racism and misogyny um and so its traces are 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 everywhere through that the way in which misogyny is articulated the way in which racism and racism denial and white victimization is denial it becomes part of that of that economy effectively and it doesn't have to be movement related yeah i mean to add to that obviously that the question of the alt-right specifically isn't that relevant in in, in the context I'm looking at, because the right manifests in slightly different terminology. But I think, you know, I think Aaron has basically put his finger on the thing that is possibly the most important and significant about what is going on with this stuff right now. And you call it, you know, the kind of the ideology freedom of a movement. 
And I call it memification, I think. I think they're the same mm. things, right? The yeah. fact that the idea itself becomes detached from wherever it came from and is easily reattached into things that are more or less, you know, that are more or less compliant or complicit with certain people's ideological positions. So an idea as kind of insane as white genocide is no longer restricted to just kind of really, really hysterical far-right conservatives or deeply conservative Christian communities in South African rural heartlands. This idea is being passed around and it's being passed around because it is not specifically associated with any particular political movement or party or grouping, even though there are movements and groupings that are, I would say, largely responsible for its spread. But it has taken on such a kind of transferability that it is now possible for people, yeah, people who might think of themselves as more liberal or people who would not overtly define themselves as racist, people who would be horrified if you put their politics in the same conversation as racism. Those people have now been given a set of vocabulary with which they can go, but this isn't about racism, I'm going to get murdered. It's about the risk to me, the threat to me. It's basically created a set of, of terms in which race, fascist and racist speech becomes recodified away from a specific political ideology and into this kind of general sense that I personally am victimized and therefore it is necessary for me to have this conversation. Don't tell me to be quiet because I'm at risk. And I think that that is one of the most, I don't know, I think that's one of the most pertinent things about the way that far-right myths work today. And I really, I mean, you know, I might be overstating this because I am a media scholar. We tend, I tend to get quite excited about these things. But I do think that a large part of the importance of this kind of new fluidity or this new mobility of these ideas has something to do with the fact that they spread online. And that means that they spread transnationally and that means that they can spread in different terms. And it means anyone can get hold of them and redraw them in ways that they find slightly more palatable. Absolutely. And I, th I think what's, in, what's interesting is, is the, the, the ideology of that movement. I, I, I find if you, if you go far enough, it actually the ideology part kind of slips away and you have what you effectively have is structures which are being reinforced in multiple ways using similar discourses, but different different ways of articulating them. So you can have you can have something like um, white a white genocide thesis on one side, and you can have the alt light talk about like you know um, white people are afraid to say anything anymore, or they'll be cancelled. You can have you can have a and you can have like a certain uh, a certain podcaster named uh, Ben who, who <laughs> keeps on talking all about. It. He goes, "I'm the most hated man in by the by the alt right. I have he's got this weird thing. He's like, I had the number one number of death threats for a certain year, which I didn't realize there was like an award ceremony for that. But and he's like, and then he goes on to reaffirm there how like white people feel like they're being canceled. White people need to take up arms, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. And he's he's articulating these in in quite similar ways, but constantly affirming it's not one, not me. And it's similar to the free speech people, and I wouldn't count him as one of them. But it's like he's there, like 
free speech, free speech, free speech for everyone. I'm colorblind. I'm this and that. We need more. We need more Nazis in school to speak. <laughs> How can we cancel Nazis? White people are going to be, and then they're like, they get stuck in their own kind of slippage between white people, Nazis left behind, etc. And they go, they turn around and go, yeah, that's the problem with the left. They all call us all Nazis. <laughs> I, I, and I, I would just say one thing, the, the, even the most like liberal and libertarian of that alt-light kind of, that, that's a, that more diffuse, diffuse network, is the one thing they always want to articulate is that everyone's calling us Nazis. And it's funny because even when people aren't, they're making the link for you. <laughs> yeah, so I, I actually, I, I do have a point. Um, so we were talking about the internet being one of the big contributing factors to this. So... Really, uh, what's the kind of thought process behind a 16-year-old kid, you know, in, in, I don't know, Plymouth, Massachusetts, for instance? Uh, How do they get deep into these far-right projects and ideologies or or thin ideologies, I guess? Um, Well, yeah, again, that's not one I can really answer because I'm not as familiar with the context of the stuff in the States. But I mean... In terms of South Africa, you know, your basic 16-year-old who gets really deeply into this this kind of ideological thinking is that, you know, they they haven't found it online. They've heard it from their parents. <laughs> I mean, we still, there is still a lot of, there are still a lot of white communities in South Africa that are unbelievably inherently racist in really unreconstructed ways. So I think the majority of the, the young people who are affiliated with something like what we could call overt far-right thinking uh, or alt-right thinking. Those are young people who are learning this stuff at school or at home or, you know, like young people who actually are physically and geographically located in communities where that sort of thinking is still the norm. But then there are a hell of a lot of other young people in South Africa who are imbibing, you know, what we were just talking about, the kind of much more watered-down versions of these ideologies, the versions that, have, that, that are transmitting in, in less virulent ways. And you see, um, you know, there are, there are news stories in South Africa, a lot about kind of racist episodes at schools. And, you know, these are kids, these are kind of white kids growing up in, in wealthy families in multicultural cities, going to multiracial schools. And a lot of the time, I think, you know, the schools and the parents are horrified or at least are performing horrifiedness at the overtness of the racism that their children seem to have inherited. Um, but I mean, I think that the thing that drives, in my experience, when you talk about, you talk about, you ask what drives people to get involved in this. I think that the thing that drives a lot of people towards these types of positions is what we started the conversation with. It is the idea of victimhood. Because when you, you know, you read Facebook groups or you talk to, I don't I don't, you know, get that much chance to talk to young people like this, but I have had engagements with students who've had these sorts of opinions. There is this kind of consistent, low-level, ongoing anxiety among young white people, unless they are explicitly anti-racist, unless they are, you know, what most, I hate the term, but what my students like to call woke. Um, there is this idea that white people in South Africa are threatened, right? That you won't get a job. You, if you don't get into university, it's because of quotas. If you don't get a job, it's because of black economic empowerment, which is the, the terminology we use for affirmative action. If you pay too much tax, that's because some poor person in a township isn't paying enough tax. There's this constant quid pro quo that every kind of failing 
every every experience where a white person, a young white person does not gain what they believe is their natural entitlement, that is because that has gone to a black person instead. So there's no acknowledgement of the fact that we have overall a failing economy. Overall, we have high rates of violence that affect all sorts of people. So I think fundamentally, what draws people towards this stuff is number one, the idea that they are victims, but then even more crucially, what is underlying the idea that they are victims? It is fear. Fear is the driving factor between, the driving force rather, behind all of this stuff. And this is why I find, you know, I found researching this material so deeply unpleasant and really distressing because you look at the groups that are propagating these ideas like white genocide. You look at the groups that are pumping this narrative of white fear. You look at the history of race in South Africa and you look at the way in which white fear has been activated for hundreds of years in order to keep black people in subjugation and to maintain this really, really messed up system of racial capital that actually benefited very, very small elites, even more than it benefited everyday white people. You look at the fact that white fear has been weaponized through the whole of colonial and post-colonial South African history. And then you realize that these groups that are propagating ideas like white genocide are doing the same damn thing again. They are weaponizing white fear for political gain. And I think that has huge, huge, huge consequences for social cohesion, for any kind of potential of, of you know, social forward-thinking social progress. Yeah, I, I um, it's interesting because I, I find my, my instinct would to talk would be, this isn't part of my research, but um, my, my instinct would be to talk about also like the vulnerability of, of, of youth. But I, I, I don't like the class left behind argument. I don't want to take real vulnerabilities and the way they can be mobilized and manipulated um, to legitimize to legitimize that or to say it's understandable. Because I know like, I mean, when I, you asked before about how I got into far right research, and and I, I mean I didn't tell you the whole story. I mean, I mean, one is my family history is sort of um, uh, Jews in Europe, but the other is that when I was a teenager, there was a massive uh, skinhead revival uh, or movement in in Toronto where I'm from, and there were teenagers popping up as neo-Nazi skinheads everywhere. It wasn't every kid, and there was no internet, um, and. There, you can you can go to a number of a number of places with this both then and now. I mean, one is what's going on in an individual or a surprising pattern of individuals' lives, heads, contexts, etc. Um, but you can also go to the fact of where are these ideas being legitimized? And one thing that occurs to me within the current context is you have um, dominant groups and dominant institutions saying. We're being crushed under the weight of feminism, anti-racism, political correctness, et cetera, et cetera, wokeness, whatever. And in some ways, this allows policymakers, including two of our university ministers here in 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 Britain, to to basically say that like um, they need to crack down on the cancel culture at universities. I mean, these are these are these are ministers legitimizing the grievances of of people who have nothing to do with higher education, people who are in schools. Um, I've seen certain libertarian movements organizing free speech de debate um, cafes in schools. And I've done, uh, uh, and, and in a sense, the students who might be inclined towards this or might be moved towards this have a certain number of things going on. And one of them is, is 
is the um, is whatever is sort of you know an alienation or disenfranchisement or vulnerabilities or needs going on, but they also have this desire to rebel that might be harnessed and articulated by elite Etonians, <laughs> you know, in, in a sense, and, and this is shared across across the across the spectrum. And in fact, I think what's happening is the internet makes it easy to find this, but I don't think it's totally alienated individual and separated from mainstream grief, racial and gendered grievance culture. And by, by I mean white male grievance culture. Um, but the other thing is I, I do, I've done, I do some work in schools. One in, um, I've done some work on, on the far right and this kind of online misogyny stuff. And I have heard, I have heard students parroting not what's going on deep in the recesses of the internet, but what they're hearing on BBC Question Time and, and what they're hearing in the mainstream news who brings on and platforms people like Tommy Robinson, Nigel Farage, Richard Spencer. These are major institutions. These are not the deep recesses of the web. At the same time, I've also worked in schools on hate, a hate crime project in Newham, East London, where the students are more likely to be on the sharp end of hate than they are to be radicalized. And I think in the searching to address the far right and radicalization, and I think this is a message to all people who work on, on de-radicalization uh, and the far right, and it's a, build, a budding industry, is they need to be paying attention to the students who are on the sharp end, not just of the far right, but of, of the racist structures, institutions, and political hacks and journalists. Yes, yeah, so, so that, that kind of brings us uh, full circle back to uh, the beginning point, which we started talking about victimization. So maybe to, to, to wrap up, we can uh, go from where we started from. So d maybe you both could give um, a, a quick <laughs> one sentence executive summary of, of some of your most Ooh. important points. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, well, I mean, I guess my most important point in this project is, number one, white genocide isn't a thing. <laughs> so let's just keep repeating that. It's not real. Um, number two, that we need to pay attention to the stories people tell themselves and each other about their lives and the worlds that they live in, the, the ways in which people use stories, use narrative to explain the way in which they feel within their lives, because those stories give us vital clues as to what is actually going on socially and politically with them. And in order to counter those stories, we need to understand them. I think number three, we need to look at, um, we need to look at the kind of global rise of the far right in the contemporary era, less as some sort of confusing phenomenon and more as something that is contingent with a lot of 20th and 21st century history something that we need to understand in terms of, you know, the way things have gone since since late the late colonial era, rather than thinking that this is something new and shocking and astonishing, because really it's not that much of a surprise. And then I suppose my final point would be that um, it is also really important to continue to think about the effective power of race as an idea that structures society, both in terms of the way in which the, the kind of roles that racism performs for people who are racist and in terms of 
you know, what whiteness means and how whiteness is used and what whiteness allows societies, different types of societies to achieve or fail to achieve. We need to keep looking at that. We cannot allow ourselves to get lured in by the promises of post-raciality or the promises of colorblind ideology or the idea that I'm constantly hearing that, you know, apartheid ended many years ago. We need to get beyond this. As uncomfortable as it makes people, particularly white people, we've got to keep forcing people to talk properly coherently and critically about race or we won't make any progress at all yeah and those are excellent ones i i, I um i particularly like the one about the promises <laughs> uh, um yeah i i mean i think my, the last thing i said covers some of this um particularly the end point about focusing on the victims of racism but i think to go backwards a bit i think that my most important point is racism is the issue and racism is the issue when it comes to the far right, but it also, um, the way politics and social relations and power is structured. Um, I think the other one is extremism does not exist um, as an isolated, discrete compartment of politics and the social world. Um, We need to police the mainstream and the way these ideas are legitimized, even when, in some cases, the far right is used as a foil to make the mainstream look more moderate and tolerant as it as it uh, polices our borders, deports people, sanctions uh, police violence, and and launches wars um, that make that that um, in a lot of cases are also sort of imperialist racial sort of exercises. Um, we should never. And I'm saying this also to academics, um, don't legitimize the affirmation of power, even when it articulates itself as powerlessness or victimhood. Um, And that's why race is really important, because when you're talking about the left behind, you need to talk about racism and not just that 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 the the liberal kind of, oh, the left behind are racist, but the way in which um, racism means that the victims the, the the victims of inequality are sometimes left as in a divide and rule construct um, so that whiteness can be affirmed and and real structural institutional inequalities are not because racism is a thing people articulate not a way the world is structured um, yeah I would um, and I, and again going back to this I mean, when journalists, politicians, and academics, if they care, <laughs> when they're focusing on these things, they need to not only look at who's on the sharp end of these politics, but they also need to invite them to their symposiums, panels, etc., um, and not just um, focus on on whiteness and affirm whiteness. Mm-hmm. All right. So I I think these are all excellent points that we should consider in in all of our research and lives. And I also want to thank you both for having this great discussion today. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Nikki Falkoff and Dr. Aaron Winter. I'm your host, Nicholas James. And this is the ASIN Car podcast series. We are, of course, sponsored by the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism and the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want to support us, follow us on Twitter at ASIN Events and at C4ARR. Car. And please 
take a small bit out of your day and spread the word. Until next time, 